Amidst farmlands, on a low ridge close to the city of Ypres, lies the largest British and Commonwealth cemetery from either World War, Tyne Cot. For many thousands of visitors each year, this is where they take their first step along the old front line. In this episode, specially recorded at Tyne Cot a few weeks ago, we'll explore the site, its history, and discuss what it means to us more than a century later. Thomas Jolly, age unknown. Thomas Edgar Boyle, age 20. Henry Edward Pratt, age unknown. Thomas Stuart Pittman, age 26. Geoffrey Gladstones, age 24. John Septimus Morris, age 20. So where to begin? Well, as we come along the road that leads us to the front of Tynecourt Cemetery, behind us are the front lines from which the Australians made their attack on the 4th of October 1917, up the slopes of this ridge, the Brunzinder Ridge. The cemetery was established on that ridge following the capture of this ground, and it was ground defended by trenches but also bunkers, a whole line of bunkers, the Flanderen line that stretched across this part of the battlefield. And today when you visit, you start at the car park at the rear, but it's always best to walk round to the very front of the cemetery. And I remember those days, 20 odd years ago, when we first used to bring coach parties here. And we'd turn that corner in the days when you could bring a coach to the front of the cemetery. And the size and scale of this cemetery was masked by some of the houses. And as you turn that corner, this hillside of the dead suddenly appeared. And people would gasp at it. They would be astonished that there was this hillside of headstones. Because one of the hardest things for most people to imagine when they read about the Great War or they come to the battlefields of the Great War is the sheer scale of this, and at Tyne Cot, you get an insight into that. There's a wind blowing through the trees here now, whistling across this ridge towards Passchendaele, just as the shells did in 1917. And as you walk through the main entrance to the cemetery and suddenly see the rows spreading out before you, moving gradually up the hill, how many are here? How many can be possibly commemorated at this site? Well, there's just under 12,000 graves at Tynecott Cemetery, making it the largest British and Commonwealth cemetery in the world, with a further 35,000 names commemorated on the Tynecott Memorial. And what we see here as we come in to Tynecott Cemetery is the legacy 
of one of the chief architects of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission in the post-war world, Herbert Baker, who made his plans for Tyne Cot in 1921, just as the final burials here were being made. And although at times as you wander around this cemetery there appears to be no reason to the plots or the burials, there's not men from specific regiments, for example, necessarily buried together, there is an order to this cemetery. There is a plan, and I'll put a copy of the plan showing the different plots on the podcast website. The very first burials here were made by the 728th Labour Company of the Labour Corps from June of 1919 until September of 1920. These were the first reburials because there was an original plot to the cemetery, now located close to the main cross of sacrifice, which we'll come to later on. But this central area of graves were largely drawn from the northern area of the battlefield, so close to Passchendaele and Zonnebeek and north of the Menin Road. And then in March 1920, another labour unit, 126 Labour Company, began to bury men on the flanks of that central plot. And they came from the area around the Menin Road, to the south towards Kleinzilla Beek, Kruzik, and a final area was made in a fan shape in the area that's now close to the Tynecott Memorial to the Missing. And that was made by Number 1 Platoon Exhumation Company from January 1921 until April of that year. So there was a gradual phase of burials here. And what was happening is that isolated burial grounds of a handful of graves and individual graves were being closed and exhumed, brought here by cart and then reburied by these labour units. A grim task. And in addition to that, the same labour units were going out and looking for the dead. And they became quite proficient at it. They realised that there were certain types of plants that would grow where human remains were located. Many of them carried the barrel cleaners of Vickers machine guns with them. It's a long rod with an eye hole at the end of it and a large brass handle. And the little eye hole at the end normally has a bit of cotton wadding that's used to clean the barrel of the machine gun. They would use it in an area where they found these plants growing and stick it in the ground. And if there was human remains there, a little bit of flesh would come up in that eye hole and they would smell it. It's making me grimace now, thinking of this. But they would smell it, and if it smelled of a rancid pork pie, then there was a body there, and they began digging. So that type of work went on almost as soon as the war was over. It began, and into the early 1920s, a century ago from now, men were out on these battlefields searching for missing soldiers. And there weren't just hundreds of them. There were thousands, and they were brought here for a proper burial at Tynecott Cemetery. So in the end, when all these burials were made, they covered a wide area of the battlefield, almost every corner of it. Four years of war and every major battle, from the First Battle of Ypres in 1914, the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915, when gas was used for the first time, and those two long years of trench warfare when there were stalemates in the Ypres salient from mid-1915 until mid-1917. The Battle of Messines, the Third Battle of Ypres, what we call Passchendaele. The final fighting in 1918, first with the Battle of the Lys in April of that year. And then the Fourth Battle of Ypres in September and October of 1918. Four years of war, every battle, minor engagements. The whole story 
of the Great War in Flanders is told through this cemetery. And that's part of what gives it its power, I think. It's the Great War in microcosm. And it covers such a huge swathe of what the army was then. A conscript army, but an army made up of men from the empire, from every corner of the empire, brought here to fight. So we find those Commonwealth nations. Australia. In fact, this is the largest number of burials of Australian soldiers on a battlefield anywhere in the world. There's 1,372 Australian soldiers buried in Tynecourt Cemetery out of those 12,000. That's one in ten. More than one in ten are Australians, and that's noticeable as you walk around the cemetery. But there are Canadians here, New Zealanders, South Africans, men from the British West Indies Regiment. It is a truly international cemetery in that respect. And when we peek into the history of Canadian soldiers, we find there are Americans buried here. American citizens, ashamed that their country had not joined the war, crossed the border and enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force as early as 1914. So it represents so much. And in addition to that, there are the ranks. There is every rank in here, from private to brigadier general, battalion commanders, lieutenant colonels, second-in-commands, majors and adjutants, company commanders, platoon commanders, platoon sergeants, young non-commissioned officers, and the rank and file of what many veterans called PBI, the poor bloody infantry. It's a cemetery that stands for them all, and that is certainly part of its power. When we analyse the just short of 12,000 burials, we see that just over 3,500 are identified soldiers. So that means that the vast majority of the men in here are not identified. They are unknown soldiers. A rank, a regiment, a nationality from Britain or the Commonwealth might have been ascertainable from the identification that was found on the uniforms of these men. But who they were as human beings was lost in the mud. How did this happen? Did soldiers wear dog tags, identity discs? Yeah, they wore two by this stage of the war, 1917, when the fighting swept across this ridge. In the early part of the war, they'd worn one, normally a red tag, that when they were killed was removed from the body and handed in. And it meant that when a soldier was buried, and perhaps his grave marker destroyed, if he was found subsequently, then there was nothing on him to say who he was. So, halfway through the war, Fabian Ware, who would go on to become one of the leading lights of the commission, persuaded the army to adopt a two-tag system, where they would use the original red tag that would still be removed and handed in, but keep a green tag with the body so there was something on him to say who he was. One of the veterans that I interviewed said that the way that they were taught to remember it was red, blood, remove, green, putrefaction, leave. Not exactly good for morale. But there was never any clear instructions given to most men. Harry Fellows, a veteran of the Northumberland Fusiliers that I interviewed, once said that what they would do with the two tags is when a soldier was killed, they would remove both, hand in the red one, bury him, stick a bayonet where the head of the grave was, tie his green tag to the boss of that bayonet, and then put his steel helmet over the top to protect it from the rain. Well, it would protect it from the pitter-patter rain, but not the rain of shells. One direct hit, and that was lost, and the identity of that soldier was lost with it. So that's why so many men here are unknown, because there was nothing on these men to aid in identification. Or if there was, it just wasn't enough. When you look at the records, the burial records, you see that in some cases men were identified by fragments of artefacts that were found with them. A bit of a notebook, perhaps an army bible that was somehow still intact, a piece of 
metalised equipment that had their name or their number scratched into it. All of these things are found in burial reports, but not every soldier had these artefacts with him, and the soil here had destroyed much of it by the time these men were exhumed. But although they suffered the indignity of having their identities removed by the conditions in which they fought and died, here the Commission has restored that dignity in the way that they're commemorated. For me, there's always something especially poignant about sitting at the grave of an unknown soldier and pondering on who he was, who he loved, who he cared for, the things he'd seen, the places he'd been, what his hopes were. And although we'll never know who he was, somehow, for a moment, he feels alive again. And that too is certainly part of the power of cemeteries like this. So what sort of questions are asked by people when they come to Tyne Cot and they've never been to a place like this before? I've come and sat by one of the bunkers and there, there are three bunkers in this cemetery that are easily visible. There's some others close by as well. There are the two that flank the entranceway and are themselves marked by tall poplar trees, which I'm sitting beneath now. The third main bunker is underneath the cross of sacrifice and we'll talk a bit more about that when we go up to the original cemetery shortly. But if we look around, we see that there are headstones close together, and this indicates a communal burial. Men killed side by side by the blast of a shell. Little enough to bury, little enough to understand which fragment of human being belonged to which, and so they're buried in a collective grave, buried together. The realities of trench warfare in the Great War. We're asked, are they buried in coffins? Which is a good question, because they've been reburied here. Well, the vast majority of the reburials made by the labour companies were brought in, the bodies were brought in, wrapped in rubberised ground sheets or hessian material, a bit like sandbag material, and the men were reburied like that. Later on, particularly with the final plot of graves done by the exhumation company, it's believed that many of these men were buried in coffins, and I use that word lightly, wooden boxes. They were buried at a depth of around a metre to a metre and a half, in trenches, essentially trenches were dug by the labour units and as the bodies were brought in the men were laid side by side, not right on top of each other, there was a gap and we see that expressed in the way that the headstones are laid out but nevertheless as comrades in death and a single plot can cover quite a large area of battlefield and others, they're all from the same section of trench line attacked on a particular day. The largest plot of all is plot 44, 312 burials in there most plots range in size from 80, 90 graves up to a couple of hundred, but that's the largest. Of the Australian plots that are here, their two largest are 22 and 23. They're to the left and the right of the entrance as you come in. There's 166 and 160 burials, respectively, out of plots that number 168 burials in total. So they are pretty much all Australians in those plots. And they're all from the fighting at Passchendaele in September and October of 1917. So what else, they ask? One of the obvious ones, of course, is how did Tynecott Cemetery get its name? I remember reading and obviously believing in guidebooks for many years that it was to do with a period in 1915 when men from the 50th Northumbrian Division, men from the Northumbrian Fusiliers or Durham Line Infantry, were on the ridge beneath this area, holding the line and looking up they could see cottages scattered around the villages here and it reminded them of cottages back home in Tyneside. So the position was called Tyneside Cottages 
shortened to Tyne Cot. But of course now, many years later, I realise that when you look at the trench maps of this area, many of the features here on maps that predominantly were made in 1916, when this was behind the German lines, they named them after great rivers. So as well as a Tyne cottages, or a position named after the Tyne, there is a Thames just down the road. So it could be that this name is just purely random selected by a staff officer sometime during the war. I also read that uh, there's something called a, a tinnicot, excuse my poor Flemish, which is a chicken coop, and it could be named after that, but I think it's much more likely that the name was selected because every position on a battlefield had to be named for intelligence purposes. So you could say whether someone was here or there or report back where you were. And so while many places were named after famous locations, I think this is just another of them. And that's how Tynecott got its name. When we look at contemporary photographs, Tynecott was painted on the main command bunker, which is now under the Cross of Sacrifice. So it was a position that soldiers knew by that name during the war, and so it was an obvious name for the cemetery when it was formalised in the post-war world. As we walk up the central aisle, we have to remember as aside from it being the roots into the heart of this cemetery, we are walking over a battlefield too, here on the 4th of October 1917. Men from General Monash's 3rd Australian Division stormed this ridge and took it, captured the bunkers that are here, pushed on to the crest. Beyond them was just visible the village of Passchendaele. And the specific battalion, the Australian battalion that took this ground, was the 40th Battalion Australian Imperial Force, the 40th AIF. They advanced under a strong bombardment, assisted by smoke. The bunkers were mighty and powerful, with apertures that fired heavy machine guns across open ground. But if they could be smoked out and blinded, then they were vulnerable. And that's exactly what happened. The Australians pushed through, got round the back of the bunkers into the trench system, and the garrison defending them was eliminated. And then the bunkers were taken over as headquarters and also by the stretcher bearers to bring in the wounded, because there was precious little cover here. When you took a captured bunker and you used it, there were, there were dangers involved. There were shell magnets, as the soldiers often called them, because there they were, these great concrete structures on an open landscape, the Germans knew precisely where they were and they were easy to shell. So it was often a mixed blessing. But we'll follow that path now, up to the cross, walk around it to the original Tynecott Cemetery. When you walk into the middle area of the cemetery, having passed all these orderly rows of graves, suddenly you're in a plot where the graves are at angles to each other. There are headstones very close together. There are little groups of headstones. Men with the same cap badge buried in a row. I'm looking at a row of men from the Middlesex Regiment, for example, as I walk in to what is the original Tynecott Cemetery, made here after the capture of this position in October 1917. And to my left is the Cross of Sacrifice, with the steep steps that rise to the top. A formal architectural feature to enable visitors to climb to the base of the cross and look out across the cemetery to get a sense of its size and scale and the immense sacrifice that took place here. This original cemetery of about 300 burials was made in the winter of 1917-18, so at the tail end of the Battle of Passchendaele and then on into the following winter when the front line was a mile or so from here on the other side of the Passchendaele Ridge close to the village of Passchendaele. And at that time, battalions from the 33rd Division buried their dead here. The bunker that's underneath the Cross of Sacrifice 
the third of the big bunkers within the confines of the cemetery was a headquarters signals bunker, command bunker for the machine gun positions around it and it was turned into a regimental aid post by the units that captured this ground and then subsequent units because this was the first port of call for wounded on a battlefield. Men were brought here whether it was a regimental medical officer, an RMO, a lieutenant or captain of the Royal Army Medical Corps and in the case of Australians, the Australian Army Medical Corps or the Canadian Army Medical Corps or the New Zealand Medical Services and they'd be brought to a position like this for immediate battlefield treatments, stem the loss of blood, try and clean the wounds, give pain relief and then they'd be evacuated by stretcher beyond here to the nearest dressing station. As I walk round the back of the cross to just the edge of this original cemetery, I'm looking back down towards the entrance of the cemetery, the main cemetery, and in the distance I can see the spires of Ypres, St Martin's Cathedral, the Cloth Hall, and St Jack's Church near the Menin Gate. And where I'm standing now is a ridge, it's about 38 metres above sea level, and I can see nearly nine miles back into the centre of Ypres. And it's one of those places where you can understand really the nature of the fighting in Flanders, that battle for the possession and repossession of high ground. Because here as a German observer you can see everything, all the way back to Ypres. Across to my right I can see the wind farm north of Ypres, near to Bozinger in the Easter Canal, close to the front lines of the 31st of July 1917, the first day of the Third Battle of Ypres. And here I am close to where the Third Battle of Ypres came to an end, that sacrificial ground, 300,000 casualties in 1917. It's places like this that give you a perspective, I think, of battlefields like Passchendaele. Tynecourt Cemetery has four German burials, and in this original plot there are three of them, two unknown and one identified soldier, Otto Bieber. Now I've heard many fanciful stories about him defending this bunker to the last and being buried with full military honours by the Australians. But research has shown that he was with the 11th Company of the 79th Infantry Regiment and he died in the fields just beyond where the cemetery is during the fighting here on the 4th of October 1917. It wasn't uncommon during the war for us to bury enemy dead in our cemeteries and for the Germans to bury our dead in theirs. And as this original part of the burial site here was eventually incorporated into the overall cemetery, there was no reason to exhume these Germans and move them elsewhere, and that's how they remain. And I think it's good and important that they are here today, that this isn't just a burial ground for British and Commonwealth dead, but there are those from the other side of the wire too. As I mentioned, the plots are irregular here, and there are many headstones close together, and it reflects the nature that many of these here will be shell hole burials where the dead have been buried in shell holes at the back of the bunker that now sits underneath the cross of sacrifice, the nature and a common feature of wartime cemeteries. Some years ago uh, I wrote a chapter for a book called Passchendaele in Perspective which was edited by Peter Little looking at different aspects of the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917 and the chapter I wrote was about battlefield tourism and those who came to see the cemeteries and what they made of them. And I contrasted the inscriptions on the headstones, which largely commemorate, if not celebrate, king and country, empire, the righteousness of sacrifice, with what modern people write in the visitors' books, which most commonly is why. 
But one exception to that is the grave that I'm at now, which is second lieutenant Arthur Conway Young of the Royal Irish Fusiliers. He'd been born in Japan and he'd fought on the Somme. One of his letters appears in the War Letters of Fallen Englishmen. And he'd come up here and he was killed in the fighting near Hill 30, not far from here, on the 16th of August 1917. His father wrote what is quite a rare anti-war sentiment on his grave, sacrificed to the fallacy that war can end war. The bitterness just comes down through the century. You can feel just how his father felt at the loss of this son here at Passchendaele. Not all celebrated the glory and the righteousness. For some, it was a turning point that took them away from that, made them question it. But we see that rarely on the headstones of these men. As I've said a few times as I've walked round this cemetery, there's so many stories here, and I'm joined by Tim Thurlow, who was on the podcast recently, standing here at the grave of a soldier killed in 1917. And this is one of the stories that you tell Tim when you come here. Yeah, um, quite a few years ago I bought a postcard, um, just at an antiques fair. Uh, three soldiers, um, the Duke uh, Somerset's Light Infantry, uh, sat... Um, just having a bit of downtime, smoking cigarettes, and I didn't do much with it really. Um, put it in a book and, and forgot about it. And then I found it, uh, and uh, on the back, um, it's uh, written uh, by the soldier who was sending the postcard home, and he's put all his postal details on: Sergeant J. Ball, uh, John Ball, Somerset Light Infantry, uh, his unit uh, BEF, um, and he writes um, uh, from John to Eliza, his wife, uh, love, kiss, kiss. And then at the bottom, it says quite simply, P.S. We'll write later. Ta-ta. Kiss. And I'm stood here in front of his grave right now with the postcard in my hand, uh, looking at um, his handwriting. He wrote it all those years ago. Uh, and I wonder, was it the last card he sent home to his beloved wife? Uh, was it one of many? What was the fate of the two friends that he sat posing with? Uh, and... Uh, it's just one of those many, many stories that we'll never, never know the outcome of it. Um, but it's uh, nice to come and actually see the man and realise that it was an individual under this headstone. And it's about bringing these stories out of the past, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's 12,000 headstones in this cemetery, or thereabouts. Everyone is a person, everyone is a story. Um, many people will go to the more well-known individuals, uh, but each one of these um, left behind something, uh, left behind a family uh, to come and fight uh, and gave their all. Um, and we must never forget that and their stories uh, and you know the tangible links that people still make today from a postcard to standing here in the cemetery in front of his headstone. I mentioned that uh, every rank from private to brigadier general is buried at Tynecott. I'm at the grave of Brigadier General J.F. Riddell now, who was a Northumberland Fusiliers officer who commanded the Northumberland Brigade of the 50th Northumbrian Division and died in the Second Battle of Ypres on the 26th of April 1915, aged 52. His inscription reads, Killed leading his brigade, but five days landed, soldier and great gentleman. And what that refers to is that his unit had only been in France for five days. It arrived and were dispatched straight to the front 
without any form of battlefield experience, straight into the first use of poison gas by the Germans. And there was an old saying during the war that generals die in bed, but the grave of Brigadier General Riddell here at uh, Tyne Cot shows that senior officers were killed on the battlefield, many of them. But these were men who led by example, and often paid for that example with their lives. He was originally buried as an unknown, incredibly, for a Brigadier General, and it shows that no matter what the rank, the task of identifying these men was not an easy one. There are the graves of three Victoria Cross winners buried in the cemetery. And when you come in through the main entrance, the first one you can find quite easily is just up on your right, plot 20, row D, Sergeant Louis McGee of the 40th Battalion Australian Infantry. This was the battalion that captured the ground on which he's now buried on the 4th of October and he was killed in the later fighting on the 12th. His Victoria Cross was for storming the German bunkers in this area not the ones that are in the actual cemetery, but ones close by. All three of the Victoria Cross winners are from Commonwealth nations, two from Australia and one from Canada. And we're just walking up now to the right-hand bunker in the cemetery, where the second Australian soldier who's buried here with the Victoria Cross, this is where we'll find his grave. I think during this lockdown period, perhaps we've noticed birdsong more I spent a good chunk of my life outside on battlefields like this and I've had a lifelong interest in birds and the natural world around us. But even I have to think somehow this year the bird song seems more intense. Perhaps it's the intensity of the situation. And here we are at the grave of Captain Jeffries, the 34th Australian Infantry. He died the same day on the 12th of October 1917. Now many people believe that he died capturing the bunker which he's buried by. That's not quite true. Where he actually died is a little bit further over beyond the cemetery up towards Passchendaele village. And he did get the Victoria Cross for storming a German machine gun position, just not the ones that are here. He was found as an unknown Australian soldier but the artifacts with him identified him as Captain Jeffries. And his father had quite an unusual inscription placed on his grave, which is one that's always impressed me. On fame's eternal camping ground, their silent tents are spread. And I think that says so much about the graves that now surround me in this cemetery. And as I walk amongst them, personally, I don't think they are that silent. They've so much to tell us. The final one of the three Victoria Cross graves here at Tyne Cot is Private J.P. Robertson, 27th Canadian Infantry, who was killed near Passchendaele on the 6th of November 1917. He's buried in the far right-hand corner of the cemetery, amongst the plot that contains other Canadians from the fighting at Passchendaele. These three men were heroes, heroes of their time. To win the Victoria Cross, your life had to be threatened. You had to be in imminent danger of death. And these men put that to one side to save the day to risk their life for a comrade or the comrades around them, and they should be remembered for their bravery. But as one of the veterans that I interviewed said, really there were two types of crosses, the Victoria Cross and the Wooden Cross, and most got the latter. And what he meant by that, of course, is that most acts of bravery were never formally recognised. And who knows what stories of bravery, of dash, of putting yourself before others, lie buried with the dead at cemeteries like this.
Cemeteries like Tynecourt today exist in a modern landscape. With lockdown, the ability to travel only just really being realised for us. Most of the visitors here at the moment are from Flanders. They're Belgian locals. For them, there isn't necessarily the same connection to these men and to sites like these. There's someone here walking their dog. I've seen people in the past having wedding photos taken here. Sometimes we'd perhaps think that that was disrespectful. But they are part of this modern landscape. And the life of these people and the world around Tynecourt Cemetery has continued to move on. The world has continued to turn, just as it should. And I don't see any disrespect here. I see people reaching out at a time of crisis and adversity, trying to make sense of their world, coming to a place like this that has defined us, and from which if we look and we listen, we can find inspiration. So perhaps that's why they come. Having come up through the original cemetery, past the cross and the stone of remembrance, I've come up to the low wall at the rear of the cemetery, which is the Tyne Cot Memorial that commemorates 35,000 British and Commonwealth soldiers who fell from August 1917 until the end of the war and have no known grave. The majority of the men on this wall, and I'm looking at a list of names, I'm at the Seaforth Highlanders panel here, which reads like an A to Z of men from that part of Scotland. These men, the majority of them, died in the Third Battle of Ypres, what we'd call Passchendaele. They're eternally commemorated along the walls of this memorial. Their name liveth forevermore, quite literally. As we walk along this wall, this is a different side to the dead of the Great War. These are the men who disappeared into the mud, blown to pieces by shellfire, buried, but their graves lost in later battles. In previous wars, these men had never been commemorated, but on most battlefields, and that's true here at Ypres, half of the men who died did not have a known grave, and it seemed unjust for the families of these men to have nothing to see. Roger Kipling, whose only son was killed in the war, was missing. And he felt strongly that these families should have a place that they could come to, to see a name, to have what we'd now call closure. And so these memorials were built, and here at Ypres, the main one was the Menin Gates. But it wasn't big enough. There was not enough space. They ran out of space at 55,000 names, and the Tyne Cot Memorial was essentially the extension to it that commemorated the second half of the war here in Flanders with this further 35,000 names. And amongst them, like the cemetery, so many stories. I've just walked round to the panel for the King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry and here's a father and son, Lieutenant Colonel Morehouse and his son, Captain Morehouse. The Colonel knew of his son's death and a few hours later was killed himself. And Mrs Morehouse received a telegram for not just her son, but her husband too. And how that didn't break her, I have no idea. The tragedy of a territorial battalion like theirs, not just recruiting men from a locality, but families. And on the battlefield, those families could be snuffed out. The graves of both father and son lost, lost at Passchendaele, but commemorated here on the Tynecott Memorial. And from here, we walk out and exit the cemetery, with the dead behind us, into the visitor centre that tells the story of this site. Age 31. D. A. Smith, age 
I'm never sure whether you should come into the Tyne Court Visitor Centre before or after a visit to the cemetery. Maybe it's best to go to the cemetery first to see that vast hillside of the dead and then come in here to understand some of the interpretation of it. It's a modern building with a big glass front that looks out across the battlefields of Third Eep towards Eep in the distance. And then when you turn around and look through the rear glass panels, you can see the spire of Passchendaele Church on that ridge captured by the Canadians in November 1917. And the centre has not just the names of the soldiers that are read in the approach, but images of these men that move from one frame to another and their faces looking out at us from the past. And there are objects connecting us to the men who are buried in this cemetery and some of the archaeology of the Great War laid out on an earth floor in a cabinet, the fragments of war that were once amongst the fragments of men. And I guess this is all part of us reflecting on what Tynecott and what cemeteries like this mean to us more than a century from the Great War. And as I walk away, those names fade into the distance. But of course, they'll never fade. Not here. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service. Tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Front Line. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. And the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at Old Frontline Pod. And have a look at the podcast websites, oldfrontline.co.uk. Until we meet again along the Old Frontline. <laughs>